Heavenly Father, this morning as we've uh, worshipped you through music, our hearts are encouraged and we are uh, looking for your soon coming. Uh, As we open your word, God, may you speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, uh, motivate us, and grow our faith too. In Jesus' name, amen. March 2020 is a month that will always stick in our minds. You remember it well, I remember it because uh, I was one week away from having a sabbatical. So excited about this. Been working and working and working, stress had been high, leadership challenges, and I was one week away from taking eight weeks off, not thinking about anything church-related or leadership-related, and just having this sabbatical. And that's when the impending coronavirus began creeping around the globe. You remember it well. March 2020, you can't forget it. Now, I thought it was going to last four weeks, but I was wrong. Everything shut down. Everything locked down. Stores were closed. You couldn't go get groceries. Nobody was out there. Uh, Everybody wondered what this thing was. You couldn't see it. You'd heard about it. Uh, you'd, You'd seen it on the news, how it was creeping around from this country to that country to this country, getting closer and closer to America. You knew it was coming. You just didn't know when. In fact, nobody knew what really was going to happen. Uh, We'd we'd heard updates from our president, from our governor, from our mayor. Uh, Georgia Cumberland Conference had Zoom meetings with all the pastors where we talked about procedures and policies and protocols, and we were to close down everything. And so uh, for a few months, I had the greatest months of ministry where I got my Sabbaths back. It was wonderful. Best Sabbath ever. But uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. Everyone was panicking and wondering, what do we do? And you had two extremes. You had the extreme of people going to Costco to get all the toilet paper they could. And I still don't understand why. So if you know why, please tell me afterwards because I don't know. And you had the other extreme where people said, this is the greatest overreaction of humankind. There was panic everywhere. Excited ignorance because no one knew what was going to happen. And overnight, everyone got their degree in scientific epidemiology. Am I right? Everybody. Everybody had the latest stats. In fact, the CDC's website was favorited and bookmarked on every device on the planet. Everyone was looking for the newest update. Everyone wanted to know. Everything shut down. I remember going on uh, a walk with Jen. Uh, everybody's in their homes, and you didn't know if you, could, if you opened the door or cracked a window if you'd get COVID. You couldn't see it, didn't know what it was. We were on a walk, and our neighbor just across the street, she was a respiratory therapist. Her name is Shannon, and uh, she opened her door and stepped out on the porch, and we were a good 40 feet of social distancing at this point, and and she talked to us, and she said, man, it's crazy. Uh, COVID's starting to creep into America, and and I'm at the hospital. I've been working nonstop, and, and she described it as an invisible enemy. Can't see it. Don't know what it's doing. You just see results of it. You don't know if you're breathing it or not. You don't know if you can trust your own family members or friends. You don't know what's happening, just dividing, wondering what's happening. You can't see it, it's a germ, it's a virus. Can't see him, you don't know what it is. And it's funny what happens to us when we face something we can't see. In fact, I'll put it this way, here it is on the screen. When you can't see what you're fighting, fear becomes the overwhelming emotion. When you can't see what you're fighting, fear becomes the overwhelming emotion. Doesn't matter if you have incredibly strong faith 
or little faith. It doesn't matter if you live with anxiety all the time or you never worry about anything. When you can't see what you're fighting, fear becomes the overwhelming emotion. It goes for everybody. And as I think about when faith and fear collide, I slip on the worn out work boots of the Israelites in Egypt as they're just weeks away from leaving Egypt and heading toward the promised land. And as I read the stories in Exodus, my faith is challenged and encouraged to hear what happened to them. In fact, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open them to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. If you didn't bring your Bible, there's a blue one in front of you, and you can follow along on page 48, right there at the beginning of the Bible, and you'll read the same words that I read. Now, once you find Exodus 48, just pause there and just hang, hang on to that passage because we'll get there eventually, but I got to tell you the backup story first. See, there's so many good stories in the book of Exodus. Uh, you've got the tail end of Joseph and his family's life as, they, as their family goes to Egypt and the children of Israel are, are growing and growing. You've got the story of Moses as a baby and how he's saved because his mama put him in this makeshift homemade baby yacht and she floats him in the bulrushes of the Nile River. You got Moses, he goes to the burning bush, and he talks to God, and God shows him these marvelous signs. And as, as you continue in Moses' life, he becomes the mouthpiece of God. Now, it's interesting, as these, these Israelites, they're in bondage and slavery. They are being dominated by the Egyptians. God gives them an incredible promise. It's in Exodus chapter 6, and I'll put it here on the screen for you. Just hang on to Exodus 12. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. This is God's words to the, the Israelites. He says, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. And it's like he signs it himself. He says, I am the Lord. Like he signs it. It's almost as if God is in a judicial setting, a courtroom. And he, as he says, with uplifted hand, right hand on the Bible, raising his other hand, I don't know how it works, one or the other, he's swearing. He says, I promise on oath that I will take you to the promised land. I know you can't see it, Israelites. I know you're in bondage, but I will take, I promise. Here's how they respond when Moses tells them this promise. It's the very next verse. Here's what it says. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They couldn't hear it. They were so focused on their situation and on their frustration and on their domination and their bad condition that they couldn't hear about the one that would give salvation and lead them to their promised destination. Why is it that when we find ourselves in a frustrating situation where we can't see beyond, that we focus so much on what's chaining us down rather than the one that breaks every chain? Why is it that we get so focused on the problems that we forget about the promises? He speaks to you and me and we end up not hearing him because we're so focused on the mess that we're in and what's holding us back that we can't even believe what he's saying. The story goes on though. It continues as, as Moses is this mouthpiece of God, and he goes before Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. This is what God says to you, let my people go. You know the story. We fast forward a little bit. Pharaoh's already hardened heart won't let them go, and so God brings the plagues of Egypt. Plague number one, God brings, uh, he turns the water in the Nile River into blood, that life-supporting river. It's now blood. Plague number two, he covers the land with frogs. 
Now, Florida's got some frogs, y'all. Can you imagine those green frogs that cling to your windows, jumping in your salad now, in your bathtub with you? That's gross. We're not doing this. Plague number three. This, is, this one's awful. I can barely even say it out loud. God covers the land with gnats. Y'all, have you, have you seen gnats before? When I think of gnats, I think of mosquitoes because I think they're about the same thing. And one of the most horrible sounds I'm about to tell you about, uh, you, you're going to hate me after this, it's when a mosquito flies into your ear and it goes, you know that sound? You've been there. Can you imagine the whole land covered with gnats? Can't, can't imagine it. Plague number four, he sends flies to cover everything. If the gnats weren't enough, he gave you flies. Here's the next one, plague number five. All the livestock in Egypt, all the Egyptian livestock's gone. Israelites, livestock is okay. Plague number six, he, God gives the Egyptians boils. They're so bad that when Moses goes in to talk to Pharaoh, all the wise men, all the rulers, they can't even stand up on their feet because it hurts so bad. They're lying down when Moses gets there. Plague number seven, God sent hail to kill everything that it was uncovered. Plague number eight, God sends locusts to everything in its path. Now, I've only been in Florida a couple years, three summers. This last summer was the first summer that I saw some serious locusts. Have you seen them? They're gross looking. They're orange and black here in Florida. You know the ones I'm talking about? They'll eat up the plants. I, I've, I watched them do it. In fact, it was only a couple years ago that there was a swarm of locusts of biblical proportions that was in East Africa. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it was just a few years ago. Here's the, uh, the news clip from the uh, locusts. The worst locust crisis in decades is ravaging East Africa, threatening the food supply for millions of people. Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia are at the center of this latest outbreak. Mm -hmm. You can see in this video just how massive the locust swarms have been across the region. These bugs have infested farmland and destroyed crops. Farmers are calling on the international community to help prevent a food crisis. Mm -mm. No, thank you. Can you imagine that looking outside and it's just covered with these, these bugs? I was on a golf course yesterday playing with some church members. It's visitation, y'all. It's okay. Just got to go with church members. We're out there playing golf, and on this one hole, these swallows from all corners of the golf course come swooping across the golf course. I'm walking through there trying to find my ball. These, they're everywhere, and I'm wondering, what are they doing? All these little bugs were up in the air like these locusts. And the, the swallows are everywhere. I, I don't want locusts. No, thank you. Here's another one. Number nine, plague number nine. God hides the sun and everything gets dark. Now, I don't know about you, but if God turned off the electricity here, it would be the worst plague ever because we'd lose internet and we all know we would all die without Wi-Fi. Am I right? Okay, these are bad. The next one's the worst one. God tells Moses, he says, this next plague is the last plague and it will cause Pharaoh to let the people go. It's the one where the firstborn kids, firstborns are killed. Now, before you get a, a, a nasty picture of God, a God that would kill babies in order to manipulate a leader to let his people go, let me tell you who God is. My Bible describes God in one way, that God is love. And if that's how the Bible describes it, then that's how I will believe it. And so I don't look at this as God that, that kills babies. In fact, I see it as God who gave nine chances to a leader and a, and a people, as he said, please let the people, please follow me. Let the people go, please. 
as he pleads with them, and yet the hardened heart of Pharaoh, that selfish heart that said, no, I will do my own thing, is what caused this to happen. In fact, Ellen White in the Patriarchs and Prophets book, she says, here's what she says as she describes the situation. She says, God is long-suffering and plenteous in mercy. He has a tender care for the beings formed in his image. That's, that's babies. If the loss of their harvests and their flocks and herds had brought Egypt to repentance, he goes on, or she goes on, the children would not have been smitten, but the nation had stubbornly resisted the divine command, and now the final blow was about to fall. And as this horrible death day comes upon the land, the Israelites receive special instructions about what to do. It was to happen on the 10th day of the first month. Now our months are different, but imagine January 10. And here's how God gives the instructions to the Israelites. Exodus 12, starting right there in verse 3. Here's what my Bible says. God says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb from his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So he says, go get a lamb. Not any lamb, a perfect one. Because as you well know, this lamb is symbolic. It's foreshadowing of the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the one that gives salvation, the one that gives freedom. They said, go get a lamb, a perfect lamb, and make sure you use the whole lamb. Not just parts of it, but the whole lamb. He specifically talked about the whole lamb. And I find it interesting that he talks about this whole part. See, it's, it's, it's human nature to only pick and choose what we want from God. We'll take the grace part. We'll take the mercy part. We'll take the compassion part. But when God gives us judgment, when he gives us instruction, when he gives us calling to have life change, we buck at this. We say, no, we don't want the whole lamb. We just want a little bit of it. We want the good part, the one that makes us feel good. We don't really want the one that makes us do anything. Yet God says, don't miss the symbolism. It's the whole lamb, the whole picture. And God says, take the whole lamb. And if, you, if your family's too small for the whole lamb, go and share it. Grab another neighboring family. Share this lamb. And I find it interesting that it's multiple family with one lamb with sharing. When COVID hit, we're all locked down. It was interesting to see that the lack of connectedness created a different kind of connectedness. Uh, when, when, it, when we were all locked down, all my neighbors reached out to me. They all texted me. Hey, Matt, how's things going? How's your church? How's your family? How's everything going? You feeling okay? How's your health? Got COVID yet? They checked on everything. Uh, my neighbor right across the street, his name was Ed. He's an older guy. He was kind of agnostic, uh, but we had a good relationship. He texts me, says, hey, Matt, I know you got two rambunctious boys. I know they're there at your home. Uh, you probably have nothing to do. I've got puzzles, but I've got a whole library of DVDs. They can come over anytime they want to take as many DVDs that they want to watch, and they can just take them to your house and watch them. Now, I don't know about your family, but my family, we try to be 
try to be is the key word there, try to limit screen time. In fact, during the week, my kids don't have screen time. On the weekends, uh, no holds back, do whatever you want. But during the week, we try not to have screen time. And during COVID, we're faced with this dilemma. You're locked up in your house. What are you going to do? And as everyone is on the internet looking for advice, how do you handle COVID? Uh, what medications can you take? Do masks work? All this. We all were searching. You, you know you were too. Um, there was one bit of advice that I saw floating around that um, I definitely did not agree with. In fact, this young man, Sean Marotta, he tweeted these, these words. He says, I know one piece of medical advice I won't be following in these times, and it's the American Academy of Pediatrics Guidelines on Screen Time. I don't know about your family, but screen time was wide open for us during COVID. It was wonderful. And my neighbor says, let me share my DVDs with you. I'll share. You don't have enough? We need more than one family to watch it? Here they are. There were some more, more neighbors. Uh, a men neighbor just up the street, her name was Heather. She uh, texted Jen. She said, hey, just checking on you. How's everything going? We've got to be close during this time. Uh, if you need anything, let us know. We'll share. My neighbor directly across the street, his name was Chris, Shannon's husband. I knew that he had a stockpile of Mountain Dew. And I knew that if the water supply got cut off, that he would happily let me go over and, and raid his stash of the nectar of the gods, Mountain Dew. Everyone would share. Moses, he gets these instructions from God. He says, hey, everybody get a lamb. And if your family's not big enough to have the whole lamb, you share with somebody else because it's the whole lamb that needs to be used. And in verse 7, the instructions continue. Here's what it says. Verse 7. They, uh, this is after they slaughter the lamb. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Jump down to verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. He signs it again. He says, I am the Lord. It's interesting to me that God asks them to put it on their door, doorposts. Do you think he didn't know where they lived? You think he didn't know their addresses? And he's like, the angel of doom is about to fly, and he may not know where all the Seventh-day Adventists live. He says, put it on your doorposts, that way I know where it is. See, I don't think it was that he didn't know where they would be. I think their act of putting the blood on the doorpost was a symbol of their commitment and allegiance to God. It was their faith in action. Those fathers, the priests of the home, they were, they were to take some of that blood, maybe put it in a bowl, and to grab some hyssop, it's this little bushy plant that looks like an herb, and they'd stick it in that, oil, that, that blood, and they'd go over to the doorpost, and they'd paint the sides and the, the top, the header of the door, both sides. It's interesting that he specifically says the sides and the tops, but not the threshold. That's where you walk. That's where your dirty feet are. You step on that, and you don't put the Lamb of, of God, his blood there. That's the salvation blood. You don't put it on the floor. He says, put it on the door, put it on the sides, put it on the top, and I will know that you have faith in my salvation. And I can only imagine what it was like to be those families. 
Uh, can you imagine, some, some of you are firstborn in your family. Uh, this is you. This is your life at stake. Your kids, your firstborn son, this is them. Uh, your life at stake. Can you imagine that night, what it felt like? You're wondering with this invisible enemy, when will it, when will it arrive? Is death going to come knocking at your door? Ellen White, she writes more in Patriarchs and Prophets as she describes what was going on. She says these words here. Uh, let's go to the next one. Oh, let's go back too, please. Maybe she doesn't describe it. That's later on. Let's, let's, let's back up just a minute. Uh, and put yourself in the shoes of one of these families. You got the firstborn, maybe it's the father, uh, maybe it's the kid. And imagine what it's like. And I wonder, uh, as you sit there and you are fearing the invisible that's coming your way, I wonder why we have so much fear with the invisible. And at what point does fear of the invisible turn into that faith that is visible, that you can really see? The author of the book of Hebrews, he writes this. Here it is in Hebrews chapter 1. He starts the whole book by saying, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what you don't see. Faith is 100% about what you don't see. Faith is believing 100% in the invisible. It's believing in a promise. It's believing and having assurance in something that you don't know about, that you can't touch, you can't feel, and you definitely can't see. And it's when we make a conscious decision to believe and put our faith in the invisible that powerful things happen. Here's how Ellen White puts, describes the scene. She says, The father and the priest of the household, they sprinkled the blood upon the doorpost, and they joined their family within the dwelling. In haste and silence, the paschal lamb was eaten. She goes on. She says, In awe, the people prayed and they watched. The heart of the eldest born, from the strong man down to the little child, were throbbing with indefinable dread. It continues on. Fathers and mothers clasped in their arms their loved firstborn as they thought of the fearful stroke that was to fall that night. But no dwelling of Israel was visited by the death-dealing angel. She finishes up this passage by saying, The sign of blood, the sign of a Savior's protection was on their doors, and the destroyer entered not. The Israelites, they still had fear. They were still afraid, but amidst their fear, they put their faith in the invisible God. And as they put their faith in action, faith won. And I believe that no matter what you're facing, whether you can see it or not, that God is there. I believe that whatever you're facing, whether it's finances, and you're not sure if you're going to make it to the end of the month, whether it's health, you don't know what's wrong with your body or someone that you love so much. Whether it's a marriage, and let me tell you, I hear about these marriages all the time, where you don't know if your marriage is going to last another day. Or it's parenting, you've done your best with your kids, but you don't know how they're going to turn out. Whatever the invisible unknown is, I believe that as you place your faith in the invisible God and you cling to his promises, that you will see him move in more powerful ways than you could ever think or imagine. I've purchased three homes in my lifetime. Jen and I got married and we scrimped and saved over the first, uh, what was it, three years of marriage so that we could have a healthy down payment for when it was time to buy. We got out of seminary, leaving Michigan. Don't ever want to go back there. Sorry for those of you that are snowbirds. You know I'm right. Came down to Buford, Georgia, just on the east side of Atlanta. 
Uh, it was our first solo church district, and, and we get there, and we, we start house hunting. And uh, God's timing was perfect because the market had tanked, and it was just about to go the other way, and it was right then that we were ready to buy a house. And our realtor, Courtney Wardy, she took us around the area, and she showed us all sorts of great houses. Now, this was back in the day when you could actually pick and choose the house rather than just buying whatever is available. And as we looked at the houses, it came down to two houses. One was in Sugar Hill, Georgia. It was, a, it was an older home, but it had been pretty renovated. It was nice. It was move-in ready. You could just go in and you're there. Was it the best house to buy? I, I don't know. It's kind of hard buying a house. You don't really know. And there was the other house. It was in Decula, a, another part of town, a nicer part of town, a better location, closer to things. It was, it was a really nice house, but it was foreclosed. And the person that got foreclosed on, they had pulled all the appliances out and sold them. The carpet was a mess. It smelled kind of funny. It needed a lot of work, a ton of work. And as we looked at these two houses, both the same price, we were trying to figure out what to do. And we debated back and forth. Well, well, if we get this one, it's ready to move in. But if we get this one, we could make it nice. And as we talked back and forth, Jen probably leaned a little more towards the Sugar Hill house. And why wouldn't she? It's moving ready. Just go in and put some curtains up and you're done. But I looked at the other house and I said, this is the better investment. I think this is the one that will do the best. Here's a picture of the house too. Obviously we bought it. There it is. Spoiler alert. Uh, it's kind of funny. That picture comes from Google Images, uh, the street view. I was leaving the neighborhood one day, and, and uh, the Google image car was driving into the neighborhood. And so I called Jen. And I said, Jen, grab Caffrey and go out. So there's Jen and Caffrey on the front waving to it. <laughs> and as we debated back and forth, which is the right house? I saw this house, and I could see what it looked like. I could see the future of this house, what it would look like renovated with new countertops, with new flooring with a new coat of paint on the inside. I could see it with landscape. I knew what it could be, but Jen couldn't really see that. And at one point, she said a phrase to me that meant the most uh, thing that she's ever meant to me, I think. And here it is. Here's what she said. She said, Matt, I can't see what this house can look like, but I trust you. And if you think this is the right one, then let's buy it. What a statement from your wife, huh? <laughs> That's faith overcoming fear. It's believing in someone's plan even if you can't see it. That's faith in the invisible rather than fear in the invisible. And you know what? And you'll laugh. We bought that house for $100,000. And a few years later, four years later, God's timing was perfect again, and we sold it for more than double what we'd put into it. That's what it looks like when faith wins. Today, as you grapple and wrestle with the invisible and the unknown in your life, may your faith grow in the invisible God that has a much better plan for you than you could ever think or imagine. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this morning, we don't deserve you. Uh, but we love you, and we thank you, and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.